I was living in a ton of shame and I either felt like I needed to be numbed or high all the time or be dead. I didn't see a future for me. Now I get the life of my dreams, which I thought was playing professional sports and being a, you know, a wealthy, famous person. No, none of that's, none of that's the life of your dreams. The life of your dreams is one of peace and unchaotic life. Welcome to United Conversations for Student-Athletes, a Holinsky's Hope-powered podcast supporting the mental health of student-athletes. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Nicholson. We are all about busting up stigma here at United, and today's episode is one that I think really takes a pretty good shot at breaking down stigma, because we have, talking with us today, Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf is originally from Montana. He was the only person from Montana to be drafted in the first round of the NFL. He played college football quarterback at Washington State, just like Tyler Holinsky. He is now a game analyst for Fox Sports. He's about to go over to London and do that for several weeks. So now, in addition to his duties as a game analyst, he's a keynote speaker. He goes around to different universities and talks with student athletes about his story and his struggle with mental illness. And he really does have an amazing story. He was the second overall draft pick. He went to the San Diego Chargers. Then he went to Tampa Bay and Dallas. He struggled with some injuries and one ultimately landed him retired from the NFL, but he struggled with drug addiction. He's been through a lot. Now he is out to help others who are struggling and break down the stigma that surrounds mental illness to try to encourage others to ask for help when they're struggling. So that fits right in here at United. So I'm really excited to have this conversation and let's get going with today's conversation with Ryan Leaf. Ryan, welcome to United. Extremely honored to be on this podcast, particularly just because of the a relationship with the Holinskis and, and in particular what they're trying to accomplish. So thanks a lot for having me. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And, you know, definitely a, a shared vision and mission of helping people out. And I mean, you played at Washington state, right? So yep. that, that gives you the Cougar family with, with Tyler. And I also interacted with Tyler, you know, yeah. as a uh, quarterback fraternity at Washington state, it's, it's extremely tight. Uh, it goes back decades, and I was extremely sad, like anybody would be, but even more so because I I had seen him and I had sat with him for breakfast not two weeks earlier at the uh, Holiday Bowl. He got to start because the starter was out with a broken hand, and he knew exactly my story. He knew where I was coming from, and he still wasn't in a place where he felt comfortable enough because of the stigma that exists to tell anybody, especially somebody who's gone through what he was going through. So that made it even harder for me when I heard about his death. And so it's been really important for me to, to continue to share my story, to work with Holinsky's Hope and to, you know, help any way I can. So something like this doesn't happen ever again. And it's so important, right? Just breaking down the stigma and the more 
people use their platform and share their story. And it doesn't have to be like former NFL quarterback. It could be anybody, but there is something really poignant about your story as well. And uh, so I'm very grateful for all that you do because you go around to, this is what you do. You go around to, to colleges. I mean, you do a lot of things, but you speak different places, just trying to break down the stigma and help young athletes help themselves really. And I think that's so cool. So if you want to just break down your story for anybody that doesn't know that's listening. Well, I mean, it's, it's not unique to any other story. I think you made a good point around when I go around the country and I do speak, I always point to the audience and tell them you're sitting here, you've dealt with adversity, you've overcome it. You've come to a place where you're where you're at, that means you've dealt with life on life's terms and you're still here. If you were to come up and tell me your story and how you got there, it would be just as impactful because we're all the same. We're all these flawed human beings that are trying to be better every single day and we fail a lot at it. And so that's important to understand and know when you are objectively looking at yourself in the mirror that, hey, it's okay. I don't have to be any more important or less important than anybody out there and, and everything that, that, that goes into that. So I was a young kid who, who was extremely talented, was head and shoulders more talented than anybody in my, in my home state growing up there. It's given me a lot of pain and a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress and how I was treated and, and how I then chose to respond to those people uh, in my lifetime, developed a ton of resentment around that and it's uh resentments will just will just tear you down if you don't if you don't deal with them so you know i just i dove into and i was all encompassing with sports and that was my that was my way out right that was my way to deal with things in the best possible way and i was extremely good and and i rose to the highest level but i had never developed any of uh any of the life skills i needed that i i had arrested development around 13 or 14 years old when I was kind of baptized as the golden arm, right? The guy that was on this pedestal. And so I never really had to develop any of those skills. I just, you know, if I behave inappropriately or badly, I just would go out and dominate on the football field or the baseball diamond or the basketball court. And that's, you know, consequences weren't the same for me. So therefore I could get away with it. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that because I heard you speak to that on the podcast Bust, which is excellent, by the way. And... I think that's something a lot of athletes experience that the, the consequences, people just kind of give them a pass and it's not the same. And, and that really sets up a lot of athletes for failure and just not having experienced all that. Well, it also sets them up for the idea of perfection, right? I can't let anybody see the fractured version of myself because I'm supposed to be considered this optimal thing. And people raise you up on that platform and then we see people get knocked off it all the time. And we're like, I don't, I can't be that person. I can't be the guy that's laying there on the ground, getting fingers pointed at him and, and showing the mirror in front of the entire world. I, that can't be me. No one can see that. And I think that, that really, that's where I really developed the skill set or lack thereof of being honest and transparent and vulnerable in anything and really hardened by it all to a point where I was just incredibly ruthless to people no matter what, if, if they spurned me, if they hurt me in any way, uh, they were, they were on a list, right? They were, they, they were remembered. And when I got to 
my goal when I got to the highest level, I was going to ultimately, you know, I told you so have those, I told you so moments instead of taking the high road and, and making it about love and understanding. And I just, I hadn't had any practice with that. So if you haven't practiced something or seen it, how do you, how do you know how to do it? And so therefore that's a big reason why I do these podcasts and why I travel around the country and speak. I want people to understand and know that like not being okay is okay. And asking for help is actually the strongest thing you'll ever do as there's nothing in the lie, the lie of it being vulnerable uh, as a weakness. I obviously totally agree. I mean, when you think about strength and vulnerability, we, we look at people that go out and endure things that would be strength, right? If you go walk on coals or if you, you know, are, uh, we look at boxers, you know, or whatever it is. And when you put on armor, I mean, you know, football wears a lot of pads, but I mean, actually armor to protect yourself, that's not seen as quite as strong as somebody who just naked goes out there vulnerable. And that's kind of the way it is with us. If we are protecting ourselves and hiding and not being truthful and honest and and vulnerable, that's really absolutely not not strength because you're wearing all this armor to protect yourself. And, and I, I think we've got it mixed up where we think the armor and the protection is what makes us strong. And that's the opposite. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's always counterproductive and that's where the stigma comes into play. And so it's imperative that we destigmatize uh, what people and how people view mental health. It's always so difficult in a situation where you can't show somebody the injury, right? It's, right. it's invisible. Um, and if you can't, if there's an honest to God diagnosis, you, you don't necessarily believe it and others don't view it the same way. And so therefore we need to continue to educate and uh, bring it into the light. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you said something that, that stood out to me about if I, for example, shared my story, it would be just as impactful. And while I, I think there's truth in that, there's such a misbelief that, man, if I could just make it to the league, or if I had the talent that I want to have, and I had the success in my sport that I want to have, everything would be okay. And I'd be top of the world, very few problems. Yeah. If I could make enough money to not worry about money, that would solve everything. And it's just not true. No, the ideals of success, I thought were money, power, and prestige. Mm -hmm. And once I got to that mountaintop, I had it all. I had all three of those things. That's what made me a success. Uh, Therefore, no one could tell me anything. Like I was the smartest guy in the room. I was the richest, the fame, the most famous. I was the most successful, all those things. So that is, none of that is true. It's absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. And the way I can reconcile that is because when I walked out of a prison cell and was offered uh, a job working in, in recovery around helping people and being of service, I was offered it for $15 an hour. That was the job I was offered. And the only reason I tell you that is because I was making $5 million a year and was miserable and was miserable to be around. And now I've been offered a job for $15 an hour and I felt more value than I'd ever felt in my life. So those ideals of success that I thought were real weren't and aren't. Yeah. It's such a trap. 
you know, and, and I, I hear people, there's just that one goal. And if I make that goal, it'll, everything's going to be okay. And I'm like, no, cause you know what? You still follow you <laughs> into those jobs and you've been hiding this whole time. And, and that gets, that gets exhausting. So taxing just having to be in hiding all the time. So absolutely doesn't solve everything. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. You struggled with a lot of injuries. At the NFL level, you know, I had a, a, a bad shoulder injury, but, and then ultimately the wrist injury that, that ended my career essentially. But I don't think back uh, on my career as being incredibly injury plagued. It took a lot to get me off the field. Like a bone had to be coming out of my body. Like I was going to play, tape me up, get me back out there. Let me compete. That was, was more about competing than it was ever a choice for me to not play. So I, I don't necessarily look back at injuries being something that plagued my, my playing career. It did ultimately put me in a position in the NFL where I just, I couldn't, I couldn't compete the way I'd always had because I was, I was limited and mm-hmm. you have to be at your optimal when you're playing in the NFL period. Right. Do you think that contributed to the, the struggles that you had? No, I don't think so at all. I think mm-hmm. that, uh, cause I didn't even, I was looking for a way out, you know, it gave me, it gave me an answer to the question I'd been seeking. How can I, you know, quit this, and still have the things that I think are success, money, power, and prestige. So it almost gave me an, it almost gave me a way out at the time because I was I could say I could I had an excuse. I, I I'm injured. I can't I can't continue. Uh, and that had never been the case. It ultimately would be the same conversation I'd have with doctors uh, trying to get more pills. Right? It was look, doc. I've been beat up for a living. I'm injured all the time. You know, here are the X-rays to prove it. Give me some Vicodin. And so. I think injuries may have been an answer for me or an excuse. I don't think it was ever anything that pushed me in the direction of why. Right. Can you walk me through what, what was, what were the contributors? What was it that took you from here and shooting star up to down? Uh, Ability to deal with failure in a constructive and healthy way you know, ego, narcissism, depression, you know, from going from being the most beloved person in the city of San Diego one day and in a matter of two weeks being one of the most hated is incredibly traumatic for somebody who sought so much praise from from others and never really dealing with that in a healthy, positive way. I think the the rise to the fall was it revolves all around choice and the choices I made and how I chose to deal with things. I never went and got diagnosed, didn't understand I was dealing with any of these mental illnesses. And when you aren't educated, when you aren't taught, and when you're not seeking out the right science, your answers are never the right ones. Your answers are impulsive and angry and fear-fueled. And that's exactly where I was. I was living in a ton of shame. And I either felt like I needed to be numbed or high all the time or be dead. That was 
that was the answer for me. There was no third direction. Like I didn't see a future for me other than the one I was living in right now, which was numbness. I had been searching forever just not to feel how I was feeling. And I had found that answer in the form of an opiate painkiller does exactly what the name of it says. It kills your pain, regardless of whether it's physical pain when it first started being used for that to ultimately the emotional pain that I was masking because I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't deal with it. Couldn't deal with that depression, that loneliness, that fear, all of that. And this was the answer. So because if I did, if I didn't have that self-medication method, like I said, I, I, I wanted to be dead. And uh, luckily for me, it didn't end there. You know, it, it, it got better. So I was just thinking through like, you know, your struggles growing up and being in Montana, you were definitely different than, you know, everybody around you. I mean, you said head and shoulders more talented, but just not having a lot of experiences with failure to learn from. And then I wondered about creating this success, creating this power prestige. And then, well, if that fails, what am I? And who can I turn to if you hadn't had a lot of experience with being really supported and cared for, valued by peers, that sort of thing? It seems like it would have been really difficult to reach out for help. Yeah, I think growing up in Montana in that cowboy culture and then being in locker rooms my entire life, I'd never seen anybody go, I'm really struggling here. Can you help me? So if you've never seen it, you've never been shown it on TV or film or from your mentors or peers, how would you even know how to go about doing that in that moment? In fact, you saw it as weakness. You saw it as less than. And you certainly saw it as judgment from others with how people respond when something like that happens uh, to somebody else. That's the stigma. That's the stigma that pulls us all down and doesn't allow us to be transparent and vulnerable. Uh, it's exactly why we speak out and use our platforms now to try to raise awareness and shine a light on it. So no one is ever in that, that position again where they don't feel like they have a way out. The only way out they see is not to be here anymore, which is the absolute wrong mindset you should ever have. And so having not seen it, you are in defense mode. You, it's a defense mechanism then on how you can get through it. And you find a way that you feel like works. And that's what you do. The only difference between what I did and what others who have asked for help and then accepted that help have done is that there was a healthy, positive choice to deal with it. Mine was a negative and toxic one. It just, for me, it worked. You know, and it being a drug prescribed by a doctor made me be able to rationalize it as doing the wrong thing the right way, right? I was going to a physician telling him I was in pain and getting a prescription over the counter from a pharmacist. So how could that be the wrong thing to do if it was helping me through it? Well, you, you find out pretty quickly in your drug seeking behavior, your addict behavior that you are doing the wrong thing, maybe the right way, but eventually it's going to ultimately catch up to you. How long was it before you realized that you were kind of deeper than just taking painkillers because you were in physical pain? Like, when did you realize that you were actually abusing the prescription, if you will? Immediately when mm -hmm. I, when I took them for the first time, when I was out 
in a public setting where I wasn't in physical pain. I mean, I'm always going to be in some sort of physical pain. I mean, I got beat up for a living. That's just how it works. But like I told you before, you had to drag me off the football field. And now I was going to doctors if I'd stub my toe, right? Because I knew what I'd get on the other side, you know? You know, I remember the first time I really took them when I was, when I abused them, I was in Vegas for a fight and just the social anxiety and the less than and the judgment, all of those things rolled into one. And I was approached by a, a, an acquaintance of mine who offered me some, some Vicodin and I mixed it with the alcohol I drank that night. And wow, like it, it did exactly what it had always done in my life. And it had removed the pain I was in. Uh, it wasn't the first time I ever took it, of course, because I had, you know, up to that point, like 12 orthopedic surgeries. So I knew what the drug was and, and why it was prescribed and how it worked. But this was, this was what I've been, been searching for and looking for. I was looking for something that would make me not feel any of that failure, any of that depression, any of that less than that fear, that judgment, any of it. And it worked after that night. It was my answer. It's what I sought, sought after and, and what I seeked. And, and when I'd find it, it, it did its job. And it would be the next eight years of my life in that fog of just trying to replicate that feeling of not feeling anything that I was searching for. Did you worry about it? Nope. Mm. Uh, the only thing I thought about one time was like, like, this is my life now. I still have all that money. I still have the prestige of being a former NFL quarterback. That was a bit tarnished. And I still had the power that came with that money, you know, lived in a million dollar mansion, Southern California, overlooking the ocean. Difference was I, my drapes were drawn every single day. And I was just, I think every morning, do I have pills? And if I don't, how do I get them? And that was my, that was my new purpose. Like that, that was it. And at no point did I think like, oh, this is, I'm not, I'm not shooting heroin, right? I'm not, I'm doing the right thing here. And not for not once did I think that it was that it was wrong until I think whenever when the money ultimately went away and I was having to do things outside of when it become a struggle to get them right when the doctor stopped prescribing them when I started having to steal them then of course but it still it still didn't it wasn't enough to persuade me not to do it like the ends justified the means when they were in my hand like the psychological effect the withdrawal of it all was so much more scary than any kind of consequence. And in fact, I probably hoped and prayed that maybe I'll take too much one time and I just won't wake up and then it will be great. Cause then I'll never feel anything again. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's exactly what I was searching for. So what for people that don't know landed you in jail? Essentially burglary back in my hometown. Um, Cause I was broke and had no idea where I was going or what I was doing. Probably the most toxic place I could end up where I, you know, where the judgment and the fear and the anguish and anxiety was at its ultimate highest in the constant search for a way to kill that pain. For the longest time, it was my community. I would go to friends' homes pretending I was interested in visiting them, seeing them and asked to be excused to use the restroom and rummage through their medicine cabinets. And, you know, nine times out of 10, there'd be some leftover painkillers in there. And I wasn't thinking about the future. I was thinking about now, like, you know, all I needed was what could get me through the day. And then I'd worry about, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow. 
ironically enough, that's what recovery is too. I don't worry about the past or the future. I worry about t- today. That's it. This was the other side of that coin. And, you know, ultimately at the end, you know, I was, I was ordering pills online from a pill farm in, in Florida and my mailman, because I was so cheap and I didn't have much money left. I wasn't going to send money to get these things and get the, and get fake ones or wrong ones. Or so I would have check on delivery, cash on delivery. And usually my mailman said that in a, a year he'd, you know, get 12 cash on delivery things. I was getting maybe two a week. And so he went to the drug task force, I guess, locally and said, Hey, this guy's, this guy's getting these packages from Florida every week and they're, they're cash on delivery. And it sounds like there's pills in them or something like that. He could never have known there was pills in them because they were vacuum sealed, but you know, either way it was shady. And that caught the notice of, of the local law enforcement. And I was on probation from my time in Texas, from my activities. And of course brought in and found to uh, have stolen pills and was incarcerated and would spend the next 36 months of my life or sorry, 32 months of my life in prison. So. So what finally turned it around? Probably 28 months into that prison stay, a roommate of mine, confronted me on my terrible behavior and choices and mindset while in there. And he challenged me and, and said how much value that I had, not only the men in there, but for when I got out, because you're going to get out at some point, Ryan, then what happens? Hmm. And so he suggested we go down to the prison library and help prisoners who didn't know how to read, learn how to read. And I had, I had many of those come to Jesus moments in my life from mentors, coaches, family members, people like that. And I just had told them to all go to hell. I got this. Uh, and instead, I, I went. I went with them. I still went begrudgingly. I remember thinking, this is stupid. This isn't going to help me. You know, doesn't know, doesn't he know how important I am? The irony in all that is the guy in, in prison in a red jumpsuit. Uh, still thinks he's important. And I walked into a room where you're not supposed to show any vulnerability or transparency. But instead, I saw men come up to me and say, hey, I can't read, Ryan. I need some help. Again, never seen that, heard that in my life. And in the worst possible place you could imagine, I had to shift my perspective a ton. Now, like nothing changes if I go out one day and do that. Like I this is about consistency. It's about showing up. Like you don't go to the gym one day and the next day you wake up and look like the rock. Like you have to be consistent um, in anything you do to change behavior. And so I kept going and a week passed and a month passed and two months passed. And I noticed I was sleeping better. I was more personable. I was talking with my family more. And what I came to realize is that I was being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. And that's, that's the difference. That's the 180 degree lifestyle change that had to take place or nothing was going to change for me. So when I walked out of those, when I walked out of those doors on December 3rd, 2014, I just had no idea, you know, what was ahead of me. I, I had hope, the hope that, that came from what I had started doing while I was in prison. And I knew that was going to have to be the foundation. Otherwise, again, nothing would change. And that's where it started seven years ago. 
seven years and four days ago. It started with baby steps about me. You know, it's a very selfish program because if it's not the best possible version of yourself, you're not going to be worthwhile for anybody or anything. And so that's where it has to start. It has to be all about you. It has to be all about your recovery. It has to be all about your mental health, all of that stuff. And then everything else is fueled by that. And that's where we started seven years ago. And um, during that span, we've had ups, we've had downs, we've stumbled, we've fallen. Uh, The difference is it's not the end of the world anymore. You know, I was so shamed my whole life from my hometown, my family, the media, fans, um, and myself ultimately that I just, everything was the end of the world. And now, unless I'm in a prison cell or about to take my own life or have the mindset of taking my own life, that's the end of the world. Like nothing else um, can compare. So there's there's perspective there. And that's shifted a ton. And now I get the, the most amazing life, uh, the life of my dreams, which I thought was playing professional sports and being a you know a wealthy, famous person. No, none of that's none of that's the life of your dreams. The life of your dreams is one of peace, an unchaotic life. Uh, as a partner, as a father, and as a community member that you are no better or worse than, but simply somebody who's trying to make it the best possible community to live in that you can. And that's, if I do that every day, like if I get up with that mindset, like I know I'm going to, I'm going to put my head down at night and feel, feel like I, I, I did it right today doesn't mean I, I still don't mess up and screw up. I'm just more aware of it. And I'm better at then taking accountability for it, saying, I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do to make up for it and figure out how to be better moving forward? It's rather simple. And we as human beings make things incredibly difficult. Oh my gosh. The simplicity I mean, of, of this is, is huge. Yeah. I'm super good at making things difficult. It sounds though that like one of one of the things that contributes to the life of your dreams is knowing that you have value away from what you do, that you are important, that you, you have so much more to give than just your performance. And uh, being of service is a reminder of value. And, and you know, we, we do think often that if I can perform in this way, that that's going to be what leads to me being important. But really, when we support others and are of service to others, it really helps us to tap into our internal value. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that uh, what your value is, or better, what your values are, I think that's a better mm-hmm. thing. Because once you understand what, what inherent values you hold dear, that allows you to look at what your value is, I think. Because mm-hmm. if, if you think... It's about money, power, and prestige. Like your value is not going to be worth much at, at all. But if you think it's about accountability, community, and spirituality, like your inherent value is going to be much different than how you view the world and go about your business. Yeah. 
And I mean, I think that all the things that you mentioned, money, power, prestige, I mean, they're really artificial, right? Like we as man created money and some crazy ways to use it and make it and all that kind of stuff. And the power and prestige is subjective and it's, you know, again, it's just made up, but connection is real and, you know, community is real. And so when you are tapped into those things, you're able to be more authentic. You're able to feel more valuable and you're able to connect with values that are real and and actually sustainable. And they're not as temporary too. No. I mean, you want things that are, can withstand, you know, the nuclear blast, whatever that looks like. That's the assets that you, you build and place into your toolbox. So, and have equity in all of that, you know, all these cliches around what you do. Uh, so when, you know, life happens like it does to everybody and adversity hits and, you're overwhelmed and consumed by something. You have these, these pocketed banked things that can help you through it. And when you don't have that understanding, when you don't have those tools, how would you know how to do or deal with something in the most positive way you can? It's when something's really negative, you don't think of positive ways to reflect and and take care of it. You think of, um, how this is going to blow everything up for you. And, and so that takes you down an even further negative path. Yeah. When you go into, uh, you know, there's some situation that's really negative. Like you were talking about, you go into fight or flight. I mean, you go into survival and you want to either fix it in a panicked way, like do something to change it or flee it. And that fleeing can be in numbing and in pills and alcohol and, and, you know, whatever it is, because there's just not a way through it. That's calm. Cause you're panicked. Cause it seems like it's the end of the world. Like you were talking about. Yeah, you do. It's when things were bad, when I was a kid, I'd see my family react that way. Like it was the end of the world. My mom would be in such a panic that people were going to see what she sees at home of their son. And she was so fearful of the idea that it was going to make me feel bad, but it was going to be also a, a, a poor portrayal on her as a mother, right? Raising uh, this kid so poorly. So, you know, there was a selfishness there to it as well. And so I think that really developed my dishonest gene where I was like, I can't let anybody see the warts or the scars or anything like that. So, you know, when I mess up, when I screw up, I have to deny, 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 hide, hide, hide. You know, that's where I developed that, that skill set. Yeah. You know, something you said in the beginning just made me think about vulnerability and how vulnerability begets vulnerability. Right. And so when you talk about a struggle or a scar or whatever it is, then that really is an invitation and it creates a safe space for the other person to be vulnerable as well. And that's where we start. But you know, when you walk into a room and and nobody is showing any sort of uh, vulnerability at all, and everybody's trying to one up each other. I mean, it's tense up in there, you know, when everybody's trying to be perfect and out perfect each other. 
and and it's just a miserable way to live. It is. <laughs> uh, what's what's so great about my my story now and how I can people are astonished when I step into a room and and speak for an hour from without any cards or props or anything like that is because I spent my whole life spinning rabbit trails of stories. Like, who did I tell this to? Who did I tell this to? How do I keep these all tied together and like that? And now it's not, it's, it's the truth. So you don't have to think about anything when you're telling it, you know it so well. And that all stems from the willingness to be transparent and vulnerable that like, like what other people think of me is none of my business, period. Um, And so therefore, when that exists, and when you believe it, that's an affirmation my therapist gave me about six years ago, when you when you believe it, and you've practiced it over time, it becomes real, your brain is the, the biggest muscle in your body. And we exercise every other muscle in our body to be optimal in its form. Why don't we do it with our brain? And so that's been, you know, a shift and a change in the way I think, and the way I receive constructive criticism, you know, before it was an attack on me personally, and not in in the form of trying to be a better person through it. Yeah. You know, I've talked about this several times that to me, mental toughness, everybody talks about mental toughness, nobody defines it, we don't really know you know, tangibly, you can't buy it at Target, but it's knowing who you are in situations that challenge that. And that's what you're talking about. So when you look at somebody that is not being authentic, is not being truthful, is not who they are, and they get, uh, and somebody comes at them, then they, they kind of crumble or they, you know, have to scramble or, but when you are truthful and you know who you are and you know the, your truth, then people can come at you with all kind of stuff. And it can hurt and it can sting and you can withstand it because you know who you are and you know the truth of it. Yeah, it's, uh, I always liken it to to Eminem's character in 8 Mile when he steps up in front of the mic uh, and just lays everything that could be used against him in -hmm. his rap. And the individual that battles him next doesn't have any ammo. Like it's a, it's a real big reason why I named my podcast bust and why I do it because I'm going to, I'm going to lay it all out there. And then if you want (laughs) to, then if you want to come at me with anything, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. I've been there, done that. Said that, you know, you don't, it's just, it's incredibly therapeutic and, and helpful in removing the power of the word or, or any of those critical way people think about you. Yeah, for sure. That's such a good scene too. <laughs> I love that movie. I love that scene. Um, and I, yeah, I love that you used it in that way. Um, well, I am very appreciative that you are being of service in this way to student athletes, breaking down stigma, because it is such a, a trap to believe that you you know, chase these things. And once you have them, it's all sunny and roses and everything's cool. Right. Or, or that, um, you work so hard that you become what you do and you don't have value other than how you played Saturday. Well, I think that, uh, the idea too, especially being so public about my recovery and everything like that, that like 
now you've, you've placed yourself back on a platform and you can't, you have to be perfect now. Like you can't mess up now because everybody will go, I told you so, or whatever. And I'm like, that's not real life. You know, I'm, I'm probably living with CTE because of my brain trauma. Right. I mean, so it's the thing about mental illness is that once you are diagnosed and you start treating it, people then treat you like you no longer have that mental illness when really the mental illness will always be there. It may be in remission or maybe being treated, but then to look at somebody and go, no, you're all better. You know, there's, you shouldn't have that reaction, that outburst, that triggered moment or that feeling around something like that shouldn't exist anymore. And that is, that is the worst possible thing you can do during this process. It's ongoing, just like anything. Well, and the other thing is like stress and anxiety brings us to our comfort, our set point where we are most comfortable uh, reacting from. And it takes a lot of work to respond instead, you know? I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I admire the work you have done and the way you're living your truth and, and helping others with it. So thank you so much. You bet. I appreciate the time. Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, you're so busy. <laughs> you're about to go to London for a while. So, you know, I know Cheerio I'm excited for that. Time. This is yeah. a, this is a really neat opportunity, you know, Yeah. for me and my family to spend Christmas in the UK and I don't take anything for granted. That's for sure. Yeah. That's a rewarding way to live for sure. Well, again, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back to Ole Miss. We loved having you. Yeah. Well, I'm close with Lane. And uh, it's been really fun to see them excel. And I got to develop a really kind of, I think, unique and neat relationship with, with Matt Corral and everything he's been through and what he's overcome and, and to get to the place that he's at. So I'm really proud of him and happy to see their success this year. For sure. Well, thanks again. And hopefully we can, uh, we can touch base again and, and maybe do another one down the road. Awesome. Good to All see right. you. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much. You too. Again, a big thank you to Ryan Leith, as well as our producer, Graham Doty, and our editor, Chelsea Battle. If you're struggling at this time, please reach out to family, friends, or a licensed mental health professional in your area. Also, we want to hear from you about topics that you want to hear about. So reach out to us at info at Let us know what would be helpful for you or your fellow athletes to hear about. Share this podcast with anyone you believe would be helped by it. Subscribe to it, rate it, and review it because that helps other athletes find the podcast. If you would like to know more about Holinsky's Hope, including how to donate to help with all that they're doing to support student-athlete mental health and reduce the stigma that surrounds mental illness, visit www.holinskyshope.org. Please take care of yourself, please take care of others, and always have hope. (laughs) 